Um, then the next probably largest challenge I ran into was a lack of money. You know, I started off, I just quit my job. I had 10 grand. So I, I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't have a ton of capital to just sort of throw at problems and solve problems with cash. So uh, I got in and had no money, no experience and, and no real credibility. <clears throat> so those are some of the big obstacles that I over uh, had to overcome. Welcome to Teach Me Real Estate Investing, a show where I share my personal journey and the challenges I face as an investor. I invite industry experts to share their wisdom and advice to help me overcome these adversities with the hope that it'll help you on your own personal journey. I'm your host, Sawad Ghimire, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Awesome. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Teach Me Real Estate Investing. Today, we're lucky to have Bill Ham with us, uh, and we're going to dive into multifamily investing, specifically creative financing with multifamily. With that, Bill, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I appreciate you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So before we get started, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your uh, real estate investing journey? Um, and kind of where that started and what made you decide to become an investor? Yeah, uh, long, long story. I'll, I'll keep it as short as possible. Uh, I'm a, I've been in real estate for 18 years now. Well, almost, almost 19 years now. Um, boy, I'm getting old. <laughs> uh, so I started in 2005. I was a pilot by trade. Uh, you fly in airplanes <clears throat> and I had come out of school, started doing aviation, um, it was, I loved flying airplanes. What I didn't realize was that the job of flying airplanes actually sucks. <laughs> uh, you know, everybody thinks pilot, they go, Oh, wow, how exciting you get to fly around this. Yeah. But flying the airplanes only about 10% of the time, the rest of the time is sitting around somewhere being told when and where to fly it and when not to fly. And I realized, um, I was a terrible employee. So that was my first sort of aha moment is I'm, I'm not a very good employee. And uh, I saw friends of mine flipping houses and doing small real estate. And this was back in uh, 03, 04. And I see them flipping houses and, and stuff making, you know, in a flip or two, what I was making all year long working. And I thought, all right, something is very wrong with this picture. You know, these are, these are my friends. They're idiots like me, right? They're just normal <laughs> people. Like, wait a minute, why am I going to work? And they're making all this money. So I started to, to read. And I just started off with the same stuff everybody else does, you know, rich dad, poor dad, all that kind of stuff, and just mm -hmm. started reading and educating myself and, and realized there was a whole other world of, of, of something else I could do to make money. And I wasn't an investor in the beginning. I mean, let's be clear, I was an entrepreneur. And, uh, and so I got in, I started uh, looking at that. <clears throat> I did my very first deal, which was a duplex. Uh, cash flowed uh, about 300 bucks a month, and I had saved up about $10,000. And I walked away from the aviation career with uh, a duplex, 300 bucks a month and, and 10 grand in savings and went into real estate full time, flipped houses, flipped small properties, uh, renovated all that fun stuff. And then my few years later, it took me about three or four years before I started getting into multifamily. And uh, my first one was like a nine unit. And then I did a 20 unit and a 27 and then 44 and then on into to larger ones. But uh, yeah, that's that's basically it. You know, I just sort of educated myself and then took action. Yeah, I think it's super interesting because uh, my last guest that I had was also a pilot, and so oh, really? it's super uncoincidental. But I, like, yeah, cool. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, that's awesome. And then, uh, which markets do you primarily invest in? Where are you located? Well, I uh, several comments. One, um, I have sold everything recently. So I had a okay. very, very large portfolio. I've, I've liquidated everything recently. That portfolio, to answer you more directly, was built in Georgia. 
So I am uh, I, I am from Atlanta. <clears throat> My offices are in Atlanta. Uh, recently, I've moved down to Clearwater, Florida. So I actually live in Florida at the moment, but. Um, my business has all been in Georgia, and I would say my general market is in the southeastern uh, area, Florida, Georgia, Carolinas, Alabama, you know, all in the southeast. I look through all those states. For right, right. Awesome. So you, at $300 a month, you pulled the plug and you're like, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to do yeah. full-time real estate investing. And I don't recommend that. Let me, let's be clear for <laughs> the listeners out here. Number one, I was 28 years old at the time. I had no debt, no children, no wife, no you know, none of that stuff going on. And I kind of thought, eh, what's, what's the worst that could happen? Right. You know, I crashed this whole thing and have to go get another job. So if you're not 28, single with no debt, no wife, no kid, then, then stop and think about if that's the right move for you. So I don't want people kind of just thinking, to, you know, what a great idea. I'll just fling caution to the wind. So um, it, it, you know, it was the right decision for me. Right. It may or may not be the right decision for you. Yeah. So when you when you pull the plug and you got started getting into this, could you describe some of the challenges that you faced initially, uh, and how did you overcome those? Oh yeah. Hold on. Let me, how many fingers do I have? <laughs> yeah. Challenges initially. Oh yeah. Um, lack of information is is probably was is probably everybody's first challenge. Not right. really knowing what's the next step. You know, I, I want to get in. I want to do this. I want. Where do I get started? What do I do? What's the first thing that I do? You know, so not really knowing how to get started, I think was probably one of the biggest ones. Um, that can be overcome with reading and books and, and mentors and things of the nature. Um, then the next probably largest challenge I ran into was a lack of money. You know, I started off, I just quit my job. I had 10 grand. So I, right. I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't have a ton of capital to just sort of throw at problems and solve problems with cash. So uh, I got in and had no money, no experience, and, and no real credibility. <clears throat> so those are some of the big obstacles that I over uh, had to overcome. Um, the way I overcame the information aspect was to learn and to just take action in trial and error. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the way I overcame the lack of cash in the beginning was through creative financing. Uh, was was using creativity to create value. And that's the core concept is that, you know, you either you, you've got to be valuable to the world. That means you already have a bunch of money and you need to go write some checks and then mm -hmm. boom, you're in real estate. Or if you're not already rich and you can't write a bunch of checks, yeah. then you've got to figure out some way that you can create value for someone else in the world that does have the real estate that you want. And then you need to exchange said value for access to the real estate. Right. That's how I did it. That's not worked very well over the last five or seven years. I mean, let's be clear. And that's why a lot of people immediately go, well, hey, hold on. If creative financing is such a great thing, why haven't I heard about this? Why haven't we been doing this for you? Well, a couple comments. One, we have been. I have gotten a lot of different aspects of creative financing over the years. Number two, yet yeah, hadn't worked very well over the last five years. Why? Because the market's been so hot. Right. If a seller had a problem, they just sell the property. You know. Mm -hmm. But when the market shifts, when does that happen? Well, when they raise the rates, right, right. And when they raise the rates, the market shifts. And when the market shifts, then borrowing becomes a lot harder. And therefore, now people with struggling assets, um, things that may not be cash flowing that well, things that may be older, deferred maintenance, bad mm -hmm. collections, you know, the list goes on and on. Those properties are going to be hard to fund with traditional financing. Right. Now, let's also throw in, you know, as, as of today, seven and a half, eight percent interest rate on top of that problem. You're going to have a real problem in certain distressed assets in America. Right. Creative financing will be the solution. And that's how I got started back in that 08 cycle, um, you know, when, when the 
properties were distressed and lending was tough, which is about where we're about to be here mm -hmm. real soon. Right. So that's why creative financing is going to be a great topic, but has not been a, a big subject lately. But that's how I got started is, is you know, so you got to create value somehow. However you do it, you got to create value. Right. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, you know, what do you think was the one factor that uh, led to your success? What would you contribute that one factor to? Uh, closing the only piece of real estate that ever matters. Six inches between your ears. That is the only piece of real estate you ever got to worry about closing. If you can close that, the rest of it will take care of itself. If you can't close that, none of it's going to work out, period. So it's, it's, it, and now that comment, we can sit here and discuss for the next few days, right? It's like, well, what is mindset? What is, what is this six inches between your ears? You can, well, that's a, that's a lot of answers there, but, um, tolerance for failure. I think a more direct answer to your question would be uh, being willing to fail and to you know keep going and, and to know that you're going to fail. Uh, I that's probably one of the things I see is people come on. Uh, you know, I, I've been teaching. I do teach real estate, and I've been teaching for a long time. And a lot of times, uh, students will come on and go, "Oh, I, I can't make any mistakes. I got to hire you so that you can teach me all the things, and I cannot make any mistakes. You've already failed." And I can't help you. And I can't help somebody that's not willing to fail because that means you you don't have what it takes. So, uh, you know, I think tolerance for, for mm -hmm. education and failure would probably be the number one thing if I had to pick one. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, let's let's dive into today's topic. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about multifamily, it's something I think about all the time. Uh, so before we start, um, can you tell us for folks who don't know, like what, what do we mean when we say multifamily? Yeah, well, technically, multifamily is anything beyond one unit. So, I mean, right. uh, two or more units is multifamily. Now, we start talking about commercial multifamily, typically around five units or more. Uh, but, you know, so it's a, a broad-based concept of multifamily. Apartments. That's what we're saying, apartments. Yeah. You know, and it can be a few apartments up to a few hundred apartments. Depends on, yeah. on the size. But, yeah, that is what multifamily is, too to infinite number of units. Yeah, and, and in your experience, do you find that there are certain advantages or disadvantages to investing in multifamily properties? Uh, what made you decide to get into this asset class, right? You started off, you were flipping houses and then now you're in multifamily. So uh, tell us a little bit okay, about yeah, that. Great, great question, actually, yeah. Um, economy of scale is probably mm -hmm. the most simple answer that I can give you. Um, you know, economy of scale means that you have repeatable a system. So let's say if I have a house, let's say I have five houses right? and they're all sort of in a neighborhood, you know, each house is going to be its own setup. It's going to have its own roof, its own electrical, its own plumbing, and it's all going to be different than the other house. And that house is going to be set up completely different from the other house and the other house and so forth. Right. As opposed to saying having five units mm -hmm. under one roof, right. one set of electrical, one set of plumbing, each apartment is laid out in the exact same manner. You know you're going to need that kind of faucet, that kind of toilet, that kind. Of, and it's a repeatable model. So when you want to go from this being a passive investment hobby, kind of, you know, retirement kind of thing, to becoming a full-on business owner in the world of real estate, you are going to want a repeatable business model. Now, I'm not saying you can't go out and buy a thousand houses and, and not make that work. We've clearly seen large companies do it. What I'm saying is that is a much more difficult manner for the average individual because there's no economy of scale. There's no repeatability to it. Um, you know, I can go out and close five, 10, 50 units in the same amount of time. I can go out and close a few houses for the same amount of effort. So you will find that the overall 
pro and con here. The overall um, commas and zeros tend to be larger in multifamily. Yes, but the individual per unit returns are actually better in single family. Mm -hmm. So when people come along and they want me to kind of argue them into multifamily, I really can't say that, oh, you should definitely be in multifamily and not single family or not, you know, commercial or anything else. I'm not saying that. Right. I'm just saying it depends on what you want to do. Um, yeah. It is managerial, very difficult to manage large portfolios of houses and much easier to manage, uh, you know, apartment complexes. Right. So but if, if you can't get into larger assets right now, then get started where you can. You know, mm -hmm. I, I didn't go buy large apartment complexes because I couldn't. So I bought a duplex. So I flipped houses. Do whatever you can do. And then you scale up over time. Um, you're going to make more money per unit mm -hmm. in houses but you're going to have more units available to you and therefore a, a larger amount of money in multifamily. Got it. Yeah. And that kind of segues into my next question is who should consider getting into multifamily? Are there special like certain skills or experiences that you need uh, before you start um, diving into this world? That's hard to answer. Not really. No, I wouldn't say you need to have a certain set of skills prior to getting into multifamily, what I would recommend mm -hmm. is that it figure out if it's right for you or not, and you probably really won't know until you get in. So several comments. I would not jump off the deep end and go sign up for a big giant coaching program. Um, I, I work with a group and I teach for a group, and I also have uh, offer you know mentoring on the side myself, but I'm telling you as a teacher, go read a book. I have two books out there, go read them, they're 15 bucks. Go, go on YouTube, go on Facebook. You know, there's lots of free material out there. Absorb as much of that as you can and then make an investment into an actual program, into an actual mentor, because you, you will find that there are a lot of um, and not worth. I don't want to say fraud, but not worthy mentors. You know, there's a lot of people out there go out there and close a deal and all of a sudden they've got some kind of $50,000 coaching program because they went close a deal once. And so I'm just saying be careful about high level ticket items and high level coaching programs that are very expensive. Um, a lot of people think they just write a check that solves problems and that's not true. Right. So uh, get as much, you know, cheap information as you can and then progress into some higher level uh, education. That would be my basic uh, advice for someone new. So you don't have to have a bunch of skill set getting in. Right. You know, it's not like you have to be an accountant first or something yeah. like that. But uh, you do want to kind of figure out if it's right for you. And I hate seeing people spend twenty five. Yeah. $50,000, they show up for a little bit of the program and, we, and then you never hear from them again. Right. You know, and it's like, oh, what a waste. So I just really wish that people would have, would have buy a book, just right. read a book. Yeah, there are a ton of, yeah, there are a ton of free resources out there. Lots of books you can learn from it. This is one, I mean, right here. <laughs> right, exactly. You yeah, and- Right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I closed on my, like, I own two properties right now. I closed on both of them before I even, you know, thought about, oh, paying someone to help me or coach me and stuff like that. So it's totally a doable. To be said for, for a coach and for working yeah. with somebody, but you, you do really need to be careful and, and spend some time doing some research, you know, yeah. and as far as education, at the end of the day, two, I, two things I can absolutely promise you, you're going to get an education, you're going to pay for it. Promise you 100% on both of those comments. Now, where you get the education and how much you pay for it and how painful that education <laughs> right. is, we can certainly discuss that. But <laughs> guarantee you, you're going to learn. Guarantee you, there is the cost of tuition. Right. You can spend that money in the classroom or you can run right on the street and, and run the gauntlet and trial by fire and see how that works out. I have done both. Right. Um, you know, the street is very expensive. It's very educational. 
Uh, and you better have some thick skin if that's how you plan to learn this business is, is pure trial and error. I recommend a hybrid of the two. I mean, you know, you certainly want to get a good uh, person that can help you learn, cut down on some mistakes, but you're going to have to get out there and do the work yourself. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, uh, we're going to get into financing today, like creative financing for multifamilies, right? But before we get there, I wanted to touch on uh, the way we value properties, right? Uh, it's different between how commercial properties are valued versus uh, residential properties like a single family home. And so I wanted to touch on that first, just so that the audience knows, you know, the differences on how we even decide how much, a, you know, a large apartment building is worth. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, houses is um, what we call price per pound, right? It's comparable sale. It's just like, what is everybody else in the, in the area uh, buying and paying for a similar asset? We do something similar in multifamily. You know, it's called cap rate or capitalization rate. Um, and you are sort of looking at what everyone else in the market is paying price per pound. But uh, we, we've moved more towards the income approach in multifamily. So uh, there are three ways of valuing all real estate. All right. There's only three. There's the income approach, the comparable sale approach, the replacement cost approach. Those are the only three ways of doing it. An appraisal appraiser uses all three methods to appraise and a property uh, to an appraise, to appraise the property. If it's a single family residence, they're really not going to use the income much unless you're renting it out. But uh, in multifamily, they're going to use all three. Income approach is really valuing the property based on the income and the expenses and cash flow. Is there enough here to be worth it? You know, that's that's the income approach. Um, Comparable sale, as it sounds, what's everybody else paying? Mm -hmm. And then the replacement cost approach. That's not something that we do as buyers. That's just something appraisers do just for the education. Uh, what they're doing there is they're saying, okay, what is the value of this building sitting here right now? If we replaced it with a brand new building, what would that cost? And then they depreciate it back down to the original date of construction and create a value. So those are the three ways. Um, I would say as investors, we're like... 80%, 85% income approach, maybe another 15% replacement, or not replacement, excuse me, uh, comparable sale, and then we don't get right, replacement. Right. Yeah, and I just want to highlight that the reason this is the case, right? With single family homes, there are so many single family homes around you, it's easy to compare, right? But with larger apartment buildings, let's say you have a 100 unit apartment building, the chances of there being another 100 unit apartment building like right across the street or right beside you that has sold recently, it's, it's, it's not uh, very common, right? So we come up with this cap rate uh, that, you know, then you can compare like a 50 unit apartment building to a 100 unit to a 200 unit. So that's that, that's prime, yeah. That's primarily the reason. Um, yeah, that's awesome. So uh, let's you know talk about financing. Uh, you know, we talked about the differences between how they're valued, but there's also a difference in the way you finance, right? A single family home versus yeah. a commercial. So uh, before we get into creative financing, could you tell us a little bit about the differences when I was want to do it uh, you know, through a bank? Yeah, that's, uh, that is actually one of the very first things I start talking to a new student. Um, on our very first phone calls, a new student, I always kind of say, well, listen, let me ask you, what is it that you want to buy? You know, and the student will say, oh, five units, 10 units, 100 units, whatever. And I say, okay, well, that's really actually not a good uh, metric. I was just asking to see what you would say. The real metric that you want to apply is what can you borrow? Either you're paying all cash for real estate or you're going to get a loan. I'm assuming, like most mortal humans, you're going to go get a mortgage to buy real estate, right? 
So the first metric is what can we borrow? <clears throat> and that's the answer to your question. <clears throat> Excuse me. How do, how do uh, lenders value multifamily versus single family? Right. Well, right. So in single family, they're going to be doing this comparable sale approach. But it's the, really the way they look at you, the borrower, that's very different, not the real estate. Um, so when you're looking at a single family home, they're looking at your income your W-2, your money, and they're looking at the value of the property. They're saying, did the property appraise and, and does this individual make enough W-2 money to cover the mortgage? If yes, boom, you get a, you, you'll get a loan. Right. Um, you know, it's kind of like buying a car, same thing, right? And in a single family home, just like in a car, that's a fully amortized loan. This is a big difference that people need to understand. We're not dealing with fully amortized loans out here in commercial world. I'll explain that. So buying a house, if you if it's a 30 year mortgage and you make every payment every month, every year for 30 years at the end, you own the home free and clear. You have paid the mortgage down through all your payments. Same as a car. You pay it off. You now own it. The end. OK, in commercial real estate, we're dealing with what we call balloon notes. All right. And that means these things are going to on average, they are going to be a three, five, seven or 10 year note loan. Let's just pick a random one. We'll say five years. So here's how you have to look at this. If, if you go out and get a, a balloon note for five years, if you paid, let's say it's a $10 million deal, right? Mm -hmm. If you paid that $10 million off over every payment over five years, those payments would be huge, right? right? I mean, there's no way. You would never be able to cash flow. Your rent would have to be $5,000 a door. You know, just, it wouldn't work, right? But at the same time, a lender says, I don't want to give Bill a, a uh, commercial loan, a business loan, which is what this is, a business loan for 30 years. I want to give him a business loan for five years. OK, so we have a problem. I can't pay the loan off in five years and you don't want to give me a 30 year loan. So what the lenders have done is they've created what we call debt service ratio loans. That's kind of a hybrid. Mm -hmm. And so what we're saying is now you have this five year mortgage that has an amortization schedule to it, All right? So now my payments are going to be amortized or set as if it were a 20 or a 25 or a 30 year loan, All right? So now I've got a five year mortgage, but my payments are as if it were a 30 year mortgage, meaning at the end of five years, I'm gonna have a balance due. The loan will not have paid itself off. I'm going to have a, a certain amount of money due. The note will balloon. And that's where we get that term balloon note. So that's why exit strategies are so incredibly important because you're going to have a balance come at the end of the deal. And if the value is not above that, you can be in trouble. So you have exits. So that's one aspect we have to really look at. The second aspect is how they look at us, the borrowers. Mm -hmm. Okay. So over here in, in house land, single family, they're looking at your W-2 and they're saying, okay, do you make enough money to cover the mortgage? If yes, you qualify for the loan. Over here in commercial, nobody cares anymore about your W-2. Nobody's looking to see how much money you and I make to cover a $10 million mortgage. They're looking at the revenue of the property. And that's called debt service ratio. But they're, they're looking, does this property make enough rent to cover its mortgage? And at what ratio? And if it covers its mortgage plus some, then you'll get the loan. Here's the case. So, so now you don't have to worry about um, uh, income anymore. You don't have to have W-2 money to qualify for the loan anymore. That's great. There is, and here's, by the way, here's where you better be careful. A lot of gurus will tell you half of this. They'll say, hey, you can go out and get into multifamily. And you know what? The property qualifies for the mortgage. And you don't have to worry about how much money you make anymore. And this is great. And this is why you should get into multifamily because, you know, the deal will pay the more. Yes, agreed. But that's only half the truth. By the way, the other half is now the borrower has to have net worth 
equal or greater than the loan amount. Okay, so yeah, we're out here looking at this $10 million deal. Uh, and, and yes, the property will pay its own mortgage. That's great. But you and I now have to be worth $10 million in order to qualify for that mortgage. So there's the catch. It's like, okay, well, you've got to figure out now, what can you buy? Well, what you buy, what you can buy means what you can borrow. What you can borrow means your net worth translated into number of units in the market. And there's where you get started. So if you have no net worth, like I did uh, when I got started, you either have to do creative financing or partner. And that's where a lot of people get into syndication. And that's why that's, that's a, a whole nother conversation. But that's syndicating. And that's why people do syndications. They find partners that, that uh, have a balance sheet. It's what I did. It's how I got into deals. Find a deal. I found the deal. And then I'd go out and find, you know, rich investors. And we would get together and do the deal. And that's how I got, got into larger properties. How you can too. Right. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's let's start diving into the creative solutions. Right. So multifamily sure. properties, as you mentioned, 10 million, they're expensive, right, um, compared to single family homes. So it's a barrier to entry to most people. Uh, so but it sounds like, you know, you figured out a lot of creative solutions to overcome these hurdles. Um, could you give us an, like an overview of, you know, some of the options that are available and then we'll go into uh, a few that, you know, that are maybe your favorite that we can dive into a little bit more in detail? Sure. Yeah, the two major uh, avenues of creative financing are going to be uh, seller financing and master lease options. Those are your two biggest ones. Seller financing is exactly what it sounds like the seller is going to finance the property to you. So the seller is going to act as the bank. Now the catch here is that the seller has to have 100% equity to be able to give you proper seller financing, all right? So that's that means the title has transferred to you and the, the seller now only has a lien against the property, just like a bank. And you're going to make payments to the seller for this property. And once you've made enough payments, if it's fully amortized, or you, maybe you have a balloon note with the seller and you have to refinance and pay them off, whatever. But you're making payments to the seller. You're going to record the deed. That's a transfer of title. They now have a lien. You don't pay. They foreclose. Straightforward. That's seller financing. Now, they have to have 100% equity to give that to you. There are people out there right now, a very large name in this business who is teaching people that you record some kind of deed and I'm not sure how it works and you get some other kind of deed. Look, it's garbage. If, if a seller has a mortgage, you are not the owner, period. I don't care what kind of deed for whatever you can get some attorney to, to record and whatever. It's nonsense because if you think you own that property, stop paying the mortgage. You'll find out right quick who actually owns the mortgage. And so you can do what they call a wrap or subject to financing if a seller has a mortgage. And that's, I don't care for that personally, but that's where you're going to say, okay, seller, we'll leave the mortgage in place and I'll just start making a payment for you. Okay, fine. Uh, but now there, this big name out here is teaching that you're going to kind of record some kind of deed. And what this individual seems to be making everyone think is that they're in a secure position because they've done this subject to wrap type financing <laughs> you are absolutely not because if, the, if if somebody stops paying that bank you're going to find out again right quick who owns that property so be careful that's that's a bit of nonsense what's being taught on that subject you can do what is called a, a master lease option or a lease option where you are going to rent the property from the seller and that's what you have to do if a seller has a mortgage so no mortgage 
the seller can give you straight seller financing. That's best. If the seller does have a mortgage, you can do this kind of wrap financing or you can do a master lease option, which is a similar thing, where you're going to rent the property with the right to buy it someday in the future. And that's a master lease option. We're just using the word master when we're talking about multiple units. So if it's, if it's one unit, a house, then it is just a lease option. Exact same concept. If you're getting value from this video, I'd really appreciate it if you could hit the like button and subscribe to my channel. It'll let YouTube know to put this video in front of more people so that they can also learn something from it. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Got it. Uh, let's dive into that just a little bit, just because I, I'm curious for myself. So if I was to, you know, the seller has, uh, they own the property outright, right? And if I was to do seller financing, um, who owns the deed there? Did you say that it's still the seller that owns the deed or does that deed transfer to me because... No, in seller financing, the deed transfers to you. Just like the only difference uh, between buying the property with a bank loan and buying that exact same property with seller financing mm -hmm. is the seller is going to step in as the bank. So you're just not giving the seller all cash at closing. Normally, when you go buy real estate, you're, you're borrowing, let's say, 80% from the bank. 20% worth of cash, you bring all that money together, give it to the seller at closing. The seller has their money, they go away. You own a property and you have a bank note on it. Got it. Seller is just going to be the bank now. And that's the only difference. So the transfer still occurs. You still record the deed. You still go to closing. All that happens in seller financing. Right. Right. Now, in, in lease option, that doesn't. Yeah. And in seller financing, if I am no longer able to make the payments anymore, then the seller then has the right to go take that property from me. Correct. Got Correct. it. Got it. Uh, and then when I do a subject two, if I understand correctly, uh, that one, if I somehow stop making the payments, then I'm in trouble, right? Because in subject two, yep. I don't technically own the deed. Right. So either you don't make the payment. So subject two is basically saying, hey, you give me the property and go away and I'll take over and I will make payments to the bank on your behalf. We're not going to tell the bank we did this. Right. We're not going to tell anybody. We're just, I'm just going to pretend like I'm you. And I'm just going to keep making payments to the bank. And we won't tell them about it. Because you know what? As long as the bank's getting their money, they don't care. Right. Really. That's why they have a due on sale clause. Because they don't care. Careful. There right. is a clause in a mortgage that says if you transfer ownership or interest, that they can call the loan completely due. Right. That's, that's where you have to be careful with the due on sale clause. Um, now, apparently you can get some uh, due on sale clause insurance. That's not something I'm familiar with, but apparently you can get insurance on that. And that's yeah. great, but still doesn't mean you own the property. Yeah. I've, I've also heard in some instances that uh, folks actually talk directly with the lender and say, hey, like, I want to take over the payment. I want to do subject to. Uh, do you know about that scenario? And like, what happens there? That would be what I would recommend. Yeah. Okay. You do something like that. You get permission from the bank. Yeah. <clears throat> Here's... Here's here's where I will offer offer another level of caution. The the person that is is most known for creative financing in the market right now, I, I my opinion is going to get a lot of people in trouble. Um, what this individual is teaching you to do is to go get and I forgot the name of it. It's some kind of deed. It's not an actual warranty deed. It's it's not. It's some kind of made up deed. And what they're doing is they're telling they're they're having attorneys record this against the title. You know, uh, and that's all well and good unless the original lender pulls the title mm -hmm. and then they're going to see this. Right. And then you're likely to have the loan accelerated on you because of what this individual taught you to do. So be extremely careful with doing that. 
yeah, you can probably pull off this recording of this deed kind of thing on houses, small community banks, stuff like that. You ever try that with commercial lenders, agency, especially Freddie and Fannie, they pull their titles on properties that they lend on at least once a year. You are going to get busted and they are going to accelerate the heck out of that loan. So I'm offering a general uh, caution against doing what this individual is teaching on any level of commercial real estate, because you are very likely to get caught with that when they, they pull their title on a very regular basis and you will get loans accelerated on you. And here's a catch. It's not going to be the loan accelerated on you. It's going to be loan accelerated on your seller. Mm -hmm. And the seller is likely to be very upset about that. Right. Word of caution. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. And if you are, I would really appreciate it if you could give me a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening to me on. It would help get the podcast in front of more people so that they can also get value out of it. Thank you so much. Now let's get back to the show. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so yeah, let's let's talk about you know what's more common, I guess, right? Like uh, so with the master lease option, let's let's touch on that a little bit. What happens? I am renting from the seller, but what guarantees that I can then purchase that? Is that my uh, agreement with them? Because the deed is still owned by them, right? Right. Okay. So here's here's kind of the problem. Here's the problem I have with what this individual is teaching. Is you're you're absolutely right. You don't have any guarantees. Not mm -hmm. really. So in a master lease option, you have there are two different documents. It's the lease and the option to purchase. The lease gives right. me the right to go in and rent the property, run it, control it. I'm, I'm controlling the income and the expenses here. And then I have a second document that is the option to purchase, which is basically a sales contract, more or less. And so we're going to, you and I are going to agree on a price and a time frame in which I have to actually buy this property for this price. Right. All right. So let's say that I have the lease and the option with you. They're two separate documents. All right. And I can go and record those against the title. I can do that. I can record that option to purchase against the title that would cloud the title. It would stop the seller uh, from potentially having a clear title to sell to somebody. But that's the only uh, thing you can do. And again, if you go and record that, as I'm suggesting, against the title, and, and the lender ever pulls their own title, they will see this and likely accelerate the loan on you. So you have to be careful about that. But that is the problem with subject two and in master lease options is you're a renter, not a buyer. You have the rights as a renter. So mm -hmm. if you get to the end of the deal and the seller just says, you know what? I don't, I don't want to sell you the property. Thanks for playing. Go away. You don't have a lot of options. You know, you can, you, you can go over there and deal with them in a physical manner. I don't recommend okay. that. Or you can go over there and sue them. I don't recommend that either. So my scenario, what I teach people is how to analyze the deal in a lease option so that you wind up at the end with no cash in that deal. And therefore, if for some reason you wanted to walk away from it, you could, if you wanted to, to lawyer up and, and you know deal with it through the law, you could do that as well. What you don't want to do is to put yourself in a situation where you have no choice but to sue. Okay. That's interesting. I, I, I hadn't heard of the, that piece before where, you know, you could go into this lease option and then you, I guess, underwrite it in such a way that at the end of your you know five years or whatever it is that you agree with the seller that uh, I guess you would have made all your money back, right? From renting it out to right. other tenants. And, and, and so, you know, if the seller just decides, no, I'm not going to transfer title to you. I'm just not going to do it. Buzz off. You know, in, in what this main speaker that's talking about creative financing right now is teaching people that somehow you have some sort of control over that scenario because whatever this made up deed thing that he's telling you to go get is silly. And I've asked his students, I go, OK, so let me let me get this straight. 
if if you don't make the payments, the bank cannot foreclose on you, right? Because now you have this deed thing that right. you wouldn't record, right? So you're saying, so I'm telling you, if you're following this guy, uh, his information, then you should not pay the mortgage, right? You should go get this deed thing that he's telling you to get, put it on the property and never make another mortgage payment because the title is transferred to you. And now the lender has no ability to foreclose and they don't own the property at all, right? Yeah, give that a shot and see how that works out. Come tell me about that. I'll tell you right now how it's going to work out. You think that bank can't take that property? You are grossly mistaken. And so what the information is nonsense, basically, you know, because it's just not how that really works. And so all these students run around thinking they have some level of control and they do not. It's a terrible misconception. So, uh, you know, we talked about these options where, you know, you have uh, the seller who fully owns the property. We do seller financing. If they don't own fully own the property and they have a mortgage on it, we can do a sub to or a master lease option. Right. Uh, it sounds like the seller financing is the safer of the two, right? Because yes. we yes. actually have the deed. Um, I, I'm, I'm slowly starting to get into now, uh, you know, now that we understand these financing options, like, you know, if I was to go and purchase the property, uh, you know, well, first of all, I want to fi figure out like, how do I even find these properties? But specifically, it sounds like what I'm really looking for is maybe the seller financing, or like uh, basically sellers who own the property outright. And so maybe, I don't know if this is something I should be concerned about. I don't know what your recommendation is, but let's start with, you know, like how do I find more multifamily properties, right? Like I, I can't go on Redfin and find them. Uh, where, where should I go looking? Uh, and second of all, you know, like what kind of properties should I be looking out for and how do I identify, you know, oh, someone owns a property outright. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, I'll answer several different questions. How do we find multifamily deals? That is one answer. How do we find multifamily deals that are, are, uh, good for creative financing? You don't. Hmm. All right. So I can tell you how to find multifamily deals, but you do not go out there, whether it's single family, multifamily or any family, you don't go out there looking for creative financing deals. And the reason I say that is because if you start calling up realtors and owners and people saying, Hey, you got any creative, Finance, you got any seller financing deals laying around, they're going to they're gonna look at you like you don't have any money. They're going to look at you like right. you're deadbeat. And that's not going to come off right. So the short answer is you just look at deals and find deals the same way you always find deals mm -hmm. and then analyze them. And when the deal does not work with traditional financing, then you reach for creative financing. So you need to kind of do that math first. And, you know, because if you can go to the bank and get a normal loan and put down a normal amount of money and buy the property, you should do that. That's what you should do, syndicate it, do whatever you need to do. If it just flat does not work with, with any kind of traditional financing, instead of throwing the deal in the trash, I'm saying pull the deal back out, now analyze it with one of these creative financing techniques. If it still doesn't work, then okay, now let's put it in the trash. But you might find a way, as I said in the beginning, you may find a way to create value with a creative offer. And that's what we're looking for. So not all deals fit that description. So you just need to kind of go through your normal uh, paths of finding deals, analyze them, and then just use creative financing to increase the probability of finding one that works. Mm -hmm. That's all it's for. It's just increasing probability. It's not like, oh, we're only going to do lease option. We're only going to do seller financing. No, no, no. That's silly. These are just a tool in the toolbox that increases uh, your chances. That's all. All right. So how do we find multifamily deals? Well, uh, you're either going directly to an owner or you're working with a realtor. The same way we always find real estate, it's no different. All right. So um, it is m my experience that when you're under about 30, 40 units, 
you're probably better off trying to go directly to an owner, mm-hmm. you know, reaching out to them, direct call, direct mail, text, whatever. Right. Um, about 40 to 50 units or so and larger, you are pretty much working with commercial realtors there. You can do direct calls and mails and things like that on larger properties. It just doesn't work nearly as well. Mm-hmm. And largely those properties are, are traded with uh, commercial brokers, realtors. I see. Uh, when you say go directly to the owners, I guess like, you know, uh, how do I even find these owners? How do I know who to contact? Great, great question. Yeah, that's the magic <laughs> question. Uh, you, you need a list. Okay. You can do anything from driving up and down the street and writing down addresses, call it driving for dollars. Hey, it works. You mm-hmm. can do that all the way up to tax data using the tax site up to paying for it. The highest level of buying that data would be such as CoStar. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can go out and look at CoStar. Uh, it's quite expensive, you know, but that would give you phenomenal data on the sellers of the market. There are other things, and I'm not supporting any of these platforms, but there's other ones like PropStream and uh, I don't know. There's other ones where right. where these companies will give you access to that sort of list. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somewhere in the middle, would you would could just go to a list building company and just, uh, you know, um, have them build you out a list of owners, but yeah. I would look into some of these uh, um, systems. Third, and this might be where you want to get started at, find a wholesaler. Go to some of these local RIA groups, go to your local meetup groups, find people that are out there on the street every day that are working in the capacity as a wholesaler for a single family. Right. Teach them how to look for just a little bit more in multifamily and then have them out there on the streets riding and driving for dollars. They're worth their weight in gold if they bring you a deal. Pay them their fee yeah. and, and work with some wholesalers. That's, that would be another way. Right. So are you mostly referring to like off-market kind of deals? Because in the past, like when I think about multifamily and I'm going to go look for multifamily properties, I usually just go on LoopNet. What is LoopNet and is, is that not the right place to start? No? Okay. No. <laughs> okay. So LoopNet, there's nothing wrong with LoopNet. All right. So Lo- there's LoopNet and there's actually another one called Crexi, C-R-E-X-I.com. It's commercial okay. real estate exchange. Um, both of those are uh, general forums where all these realtors in the world will list deals. Fine. The problem there is there's a, mil- there's a million of you log in every day onto LoopNet and look at those deals. I so see. if it is a good deal, is about a one in a million chance it's going to be on LoopNet, right? Because everybody sees it. What you have to do is, is again, either go directly to an owner. That's going to be mm-hmm. you know, calling them somehow. Forget that. Working with realtors. What you want to do is go to the realtor's home website. So uh, figure out in your market, let's say uh, I'm in Georgia. All right. So step one, figure out who are all of the commercial realty firms in Georgia, in your state that specialize in multifamily. Mm -hmm. There's step number one. Now that is what LoopNet is great for. Are you going to find good deals on LoopNet? Not likely, but go to LoopNet dot com by the way go to loopnet.com and and look and see who are all of the companies not people but companies that are listing these assets in your state there's a shortcut to figuring out who all the realtors are so i always teach my students make a big long list of all the realty companies and then second step go to their home websites got it so you know go to mark Similichap, go to Bercadia, uh cbre cushman wakefield you know there's a bunch of them but go to their home websites and you will find their current listings on their home website, not on LoopNet, not on Crexy, because most of these realtors will put one little deal over there in LoopNet, almost like a business card. They might have several other ones on their home website. Right. So there's your trick. Go to home realtors, home websites to find deals. Okay. So I'm working with, you know, 
uh, realtors, I'm working with, I'm finding lists and going directly to uh, sellers. Uh, if uh, like, let's say I have this property in front of me, what should I look out for in the beginning? Like, I guess I'll see some sort of financials, right? And so I can underwrite that way. But other than the numbers that we can underwrite, uh, I guess I'm looking for gotchas, right? Things I should be, things that are red flags that I should be aware of that I should, you know, think twice yeah, about. Yeah, that's a hard one to answer because there's lots of those. But yeah, you want to... You want to start off trying to get the financial data from the seller, as you pointed out. If for some reason you cannot get a, a T12, a trailing 12, or financials from the property, you're going to have to reconstruct that data. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to have to kind of say, okay, how many units do we have? Let's say 20, fine. Uh, what is the average rent in the area? And you're going to have to multiply the units by the average rent to create an estimated annual income. And then you need to subtract a certain percent for expenses. Right. And then whatever is left over is your net operating income. And then you would do your mortgage calculation from there. So that would be one. Um, I would say that one of the biggest gotchas that you need to be careful about is actually getting some financial data, but not enough financial data mm. and or believing in the financial data that you've gotten. Never underwrite a deal from the data that is placed inside the offering memorandum from a realtor. All right. So realtors put together what we call the OM or the property package. And right. that's just the pictures and the charts and the graphs. They will typically have in there um, financial information and they will say T12, actual data, whatever the case. Look, I love my realtors, but I don't trust them <laughs> in those OMs. And, and you can't either. Right. Um, never, ever underwrite a deal for the data that is in the OM, you then go back to the realtor and say, okay, great, I like that, give me a T12. And if they say, oh, well, it's in the OM, say, okay, great, appreciate it, give me the T12. Here's the end-to-end -end answer. No lender is gonna give you a loan based on the OM. So you can't borrow money on that. So you gotta get the real data now, tomorrow, or next week, or sometime before you walk into the bank, and you need to go ahead and let the, your, your agent know that. Right. And if they, you, they can't provide you with that information, okay, great. You're just going to take a whole lot off the asking price right. to hedge against the risk of not having financial data. No problem. Usually, all of a sudden, the financial data shows up about the time you explain it that way. You know, it'll take a million bucks off. No problem. Oh, look, here's financial data. Yeah, it's not <laughs> so, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, right, give me, right. you, you, you're not going to go to the bank with the OM. You're not. So give it to me now, give it to me later, or I'll just chop the price in half. Your choice. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I don't have a lot of experience in multifamily, but I have, you know, poked around in LoopNet a little bit. Um, and that's one of the most annoying things is I'll see all these offering, uh, you know, um, the they usually uh, rather than talking about the T12, what most real what I found on LoopNet is they actually talk about like performers and they'll say, hey, like this is what you can rent it for. Right. And they'll like you create the 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 value based like they'll decide on the value based on that and and it's, the, I found that's that's the most irritating thing because you're like yeah sure I can but what is it currently operating at right that's the real number exactly. that I care about exactly. yep uh, you're you're not wrong what I always tell everybody is you can buy on pro forma but you are gonna borrow on actuals right so sure you can see and read this pro forma all day long and here's what it can do and it can be great and it's wonderful and all these great things great cool. Now go to the bank and see if they're going to give you a loan on any of that. Yeah. And the answer is no, they are not. And so right back to that point of what you're really analyzing is what the seller is doing today. 
Right. And there's your starting point because that's what the loan is going to be based on. Then you can create a performa that says, okay, it's going to do this and it's going to do that in the future. That's that's what we call value add. Mm -hmm. Some of the best deals I've ever done were horrible at closing because the seller had damaged the property. I went and bought them, fixed them up, and they turned out to be great deals. Yeah, but I had to go get a very high interest rate expensive loan to be able to do that deal. You know, not 20% down at 3% interest rate. It wasn't like that, you know. Right. So that's where you, you kind of have to understand the difference between the performa, what it could do, which by the way, your performa and the realtor's performa are also two different things, you know. Yeah. Do your own. Don't don't necessarily believe theirs. Yeah. And then go get the actuals, the T twelve. And what we're seeing is a lot of sellers slash realtors are are not really wanting to give that financial data. They're really wanting you to buy it on the performa. And mm-hmm. and I understand, but unless you're paying all cash, yeah, you're still gonna have to answer to the bank. And, you know, the old saying goes, he he with the gold makes the rules, right? Well, Banks are making the rules. The end. Simple as that. If you don't like it, then pay all cash. Don't borrow it. Yeah. So let's say I'm looking at several properties, right? Uh, and I have, you know, the actual T12s. I have, you know, actual data. Uh, what do you use to determine if something is a good deal and it's an opportunity and we should buy it? Is it just as simple as looking at the financials and looking at, like, you know, the value add opportunities and where we could get the rents to and the Largely. Um, mm-hmm. Location has a lot to do with it. Condition and age of the building has a lot to do with it. But the the general answer when someone asks me, what is a good deal? I can only respond with a question. Well, what is your cost of capital? All right. So you your money costs money. Mm-hmm. Everybody's money costs money, right? We buy and sell and trade money every day at, at price. So you have to figure out what is your money cost? And my answer is a good deal is a deal that makes more money than it costs to own. Real simple. You know, now, again, what does it cost for you to own it? Well, what's your cost of capital? We don't know. All right. Well, now we're going to have to discuss capital stack. And and we don't have a a visual image, but everybody listening, just Google capital stack and it'll show you a pretty good image. Um, You know, what is the amount of money that it takes to buy this deal? Where does it come from and what's the price of it? Well, let's say 80 percent of the money is coming from the bank. Okay, well, what is the price of that money? Interest rate. Okay, so then we got to bring in the down payment, the 20% down. Great, where's that money coming from? Well, it's either your money, and now you have to ask yourself, if I were to invest this money, what return would I want to invest it for? Okay, there's your your answer. Or if you're saying, nope, I'm going to go out to these investors and raise money from these investors, Mm -hmm. then you have to ask, what kind of return would they invest for? Yeah. And there is your total capital stack and the cost. So you got to look at what the the money costs from the bank, which today, this afternoon, December nineteenth, it's about seven and a half, eight percent, right? And then you've got to look at what the money would be coming from your investors, which mostly we can raise money from between, usually between six and eight percent. Um, so actually, at the moment, private money is probably cheaper than than debt. Uh, but yeah, that's the answer. You've got to then say it costs me this amount of money to to own the deal. Does this deal produce more money than that? If the answer is yes, then I would say you you probably have a good deal. If the answer is no, then I'd say you probably have a foreclosure on your hands. Right. Um, on that topic, so I, as a you know, somewhat of a new investor, I only have you know uh, two properties. I've only been in an investor for one year. How do I approach investors and say, hey, I have this deal, and I'd like your help with you know the down payment, and how do I raise private? money from well, investors. Pretty good start right there. I mean, what you just <laughs> said works pretty well. Hey, yeah. I have a deal. Are you interested? Right. 
okay, what am I? What do you, what do you want my money for? Down payment? Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's investors only want to know a couple of things. Who are you? What are you trying to do? What do you want with their money? How much are they going to make and when do they get it back? Yeah. That's it, really. So, so that's it right there. Hey, I'm Bill. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've got experience. I've done this. Or maybe you don't. Right. Then get an education. Hey, I'm, I'm Bill. I haven't done this a lot. But you know what? I've been to these courses. I've got this information, this, that, and the other. Here is a good deal. Yeah. It is a good deal because, okay, there's your underwriting. You've underwritten the deal and you say, we're buying it at this price. It makes this amount of money. Therefore, I'm going to give you X percent return mm-hmm. on the down payment. There's third point. What are we doing with your money? Down payment. Great. How much am I going to make? The returns you just calculated. Right. Cool. When am I going to get my money back? Exit. Okay. Is it a two year, a three year, a five year? I don't know. That's up to you. Mm-hmm. That's the gist of what you're doing. It's, yeah. it's not very complicated, but to, to approach investors, you have to have the underwriting. You have to have that down so that you can say, hey, per my calculation, you should be receiving X return. You know, and that's the answer. Yeah. Um, where do I find these investors? Is it through my local RIA meetups? Uh, is that the best place to find them? Everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. It, you know, it's like you're, you're basically asking me, how do you meet people? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everywhere. I mean, yeah. you know, you meet people all day, every day on the, right. on the subway, your dentist, your doctor, whatever. It's a function of just constantly meeting people and, and to your point, talking about what you're doing, talking about real estate, being enthusiastic about what you're doing, being enthusiastic about your business. That is all you need to do to raise money is meet people, be able to explain what you do, why it's a good idea and be enthusiastic. And then it's just rinse and repeat. Yeah. So yes, you go to your RIA groups and this group and that group. Yes, all of those places everywhere. There's not like this investor place that we all go to the investor emporium and mm-hmm. pick up uh, a bunch of investors from Investor Depot. Yeah, that's not how that works. You know, what I, mean? right. I wish it did. I really wish it did. Right. Uh, but it's it's not. You know, it's just general friends and family. Yeah, friends and family makes sense. Uh, you know, the this podcast is called Teach Me Real Estate Investing. So I'm going to take a couple of minutes just to poke your you know brain about you know and get a little bit of advice on my personal situation, right? So, uh, so far I have bought one triplex and I live in Seattle. So I have a triplex in Seattle, which I, I live in one of the units. The other two units are being rented out as Airbnbs. Uh, and then I have a bill to rent that's going to finish in mid January in Florida. Uh, that's, uh, in Kissimmee, Florida, a little South from Orlando. Uh, and that's supposed to cash flow. uh, I think a couple hundred bucks a month, right? That's where I am. My question to you is, uh, should I, at what point should I start thinking about, you know, getting into multifamily? Like, is now the time? Should I still c- focus on, you know, single families or like smaller units, uh, right now and kind of grow my portfolio that way? Um, the, you know, like there are so many different avenues of investing sure. in real estate, so many different markets, all that sort of stuff. But, uh, just on the topic of, you know, residential versus, you know, commercial, like at what point would you recommend someone makes that transition? Right now, uh, you know, it's it's not technically a relevant question. I don't mean that to be offensive, but it's, it's it doesn't matter. Do what you can do. Right. If you can close two units, close two units. If you can close a house, close a house. If you can close 100 units, close 100 units. Go ahead. You know, the, the, the key again is to really remember what I told you about borrowing in the commercial world. 
So you're you're going to need net worth equal to or greater than the loan amount. So I would start right there. And that's probably my mathematical answer to your question is what can you buy? Mm -hmm. If you can buy and borrow a duplex, borrow and buy for a duplex, then do it. If you can do 10 units or 20s, do that. And if you can't, then you have a function of networking as well as deal flow. So if you say, well, yeah, I, I can go buy duplexes, great. But you know what? That doesn't get me financially where I'm trying to go in the time frame that I want to get there. Right. It'll take you 10 years to buy duplexes. You say, no, 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 I've got three years, mm -hmm. not 10 years. Okay, cool. Then you need to be out buying 50 units and 100 units. Okay, but can you? Mm -hmm. All right, well, then you, you need to be looking at deals, but you also better be looking for partners. Yeah. So use the net worth, the equity, and the borrowing capability to dictate when and where you go. Okay. So just get started where you can and then go as big as you can. You know, It would be a waste of your time to run around looking at 100-unit apartment complexes if, if you can't close one. You're just going to burn yourself out. You know? right. And in the same amount of time, you probably could have gone and done a triplex. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with that. So yeah. just do whatever you can and then network for your net worth. Yeah, you know that's what I would tell you. Yeah, awesome. Um, yeah, I think we have to wrap up here uh, really soon. But before we do, uh, tell us a little bit, a little bit about you know what are your plans now? You, you mentioned earlier that you just sold your uh, real estate portfolio. So what are next steps for you? What are you hoping to do in the next year, couple of years? Well, my easy answer, my agenda is always to hit the closing table twice a year. Okay. And I don't care if it's a buy or a sell or a refinance. Or I just want to be at the closing table twice a year. Well, this last year we did in two sales. I didn't buy anything last year. We, we sold more than two. Uh, and, and so now next year, um, purchase some more. Start over. Get going. Um, you know, I, I think, long conversation, but I think that we are going to see a pretty heavy shift in the market here. With the interest rates where they are, I think we're going to see a lot of distress in the market over the next one to three years. And um, I am positioning myself along with my network. And, and again, back to the same as everybody else, network and net, networking uh, to get my partners positioned for uh, opportunity that I do believe is going to come here in the near future. So getting ready to buy again, simple as that. Yeah, awesome. Uh, so if people uh, tell us, I guess, before we wrap up a little bit about your book, who's the book for? Oh. Um, All right. Uh, I have two books, as a matter of fact. So one, we have uh, Creative Cash. This is the one uh, that we're talking about really today. Creative, it's kind of reversed here. Creative Cash. Uh, that is the uh, creative financing. So you can get Creative Cash. Uh, it's on Amazon. Both are on Amazon. That book is going to be about how to use match lease options, seller financing, and things of that nature in order to get um, creative financing for all types of real estate, not just multifamily. So that, that tells you how to use lease options and Mash lease options and seller financing. Everything that we talked about today is in the book Creative Cash. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I have Real Estate Raw. That is my second book. Real Estate Raw is the book on uh, how to build a portfolio in multifamily step by step, start to finish. So you have Real Estate Raw tells you how to build a portfolio. Creative Cash tells you how to finance it using creative financing. Both books are on Amazon. Um, so you can just look those up. You can also, I, I put out a lot of material uh, online. Mm -hmm. So if you just, again, always this always sounds arrogant when I say it, but if you'll just Google Bill Ham Real Estate, Bill Ham 1M, uh, you will pull up a lot of stuff that I've done, a lot of free information that I've put out there. Uh, I even have a, a Facebook group by the name of the book, Real Estate Raw, totally free. 
um, go live every week uh, on Tuesdays, nothing but content. So join us on the Facebook group, Real Estate Raw. Uh, yeah, other than that, you can follow me on the socials, all the socials. Awesome. And so it's just uh, Bill Hemra on uh, Real Estate, sorry, on all of them. Yeah, yeah, Real Estate Raw. Uh, yeah, you can find me there. And I give, I'll be happy to give you my email. Uh, it's bill at gobroadwell.com. Uh, B-R-O-A-D-W-E-L-L. Uh, you can also check out my portfolio at Broadwell Property Group. Now, that is not education. That is my partner and I's actual uh, yeah. real estate portfolio. So, so check us out at gobroadwell.com or broadwellpropertygroup.com. Awesome. Sounds good. And if anyone wants to follow me on social media, I'm, I so got this on all, you know, all the platforms, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, they're all the same handle. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, you know, talk with us today. I learned a lot. I hope our audience learns a lot as well. Yeah, I, I guess that, yeah, that's about it. Um, and yeah, we can wrap it up. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Thanks a lot. Yeah. All right, that is the end of today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I would really appreciate it if you could take a moment to give me a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening to me on. It would really help my mission of teaching more people about real estate investing. Thank you, and I'll see you in the next one.